We just sang a song before Mick gave those announcements about Jesus reigning over all. It raises a broader topic of spiritual authority. Spiritual authority is a, really a pretty complex biblical topic, subject to different interpretations depending on what period of time you're reading about in Scripture, also depending on who you're reading to interpret it for you. Well, one thing is clear from the historical accounts of the life of Jesus Christ as recorded by the four gospel historians, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Jesus possessed and wielded powerful spiritual authority even while he was on earth as the so-called son of man. It was clear from his teachings. It was clear from his treatment of demons. We'll see both of those today. It was clear from his control of nature. He could stop storms. It was clear from his healing of diseases and his power over death. It is also clear, as we'll see, that he delegated some of that authority to us, to his church, after his resurrection. So today's snapshot from the life of Jesus is chronicled by the Jesus historian Mark. It's recorded in Mark 1, verses 21 through 34, if you want to start turning there, if you have a Bible or the Bible app on your phone, or you can look on the screen. Spiritual authority is only one of the topics that are raised, but it is one, and we'll dive into it right now. So, Mark records that Jesus returned to a, or went to a place called Capernaum, a city. We'll talk more about that in just a minute. They, meaning at least the two famous sets of brothers that he had selected when he told them to drop their nets, quit fishing, and follow him, and they did, that would be... Andrew and Simon Peter, brothers, and James and John. And so at least the five of them, probably more, went to Capernaum. Capernaum probably is their hometown. It's at least the hometown of Andrew and Simon. And they had apparently left there and had been ministering in Nazareth. And so Jesus kind of picks them up on the way and he's shifting his ministry headquarters from the area of Nazareth to the area of Capernaum, more in a region called Galilee. So they went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. More on what a synagogue is in just a minute. Think of his church right now. So Jesus is simply teaching in church on the Sabbath. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority. Well, when God shows up in church and takes the podium, he can speak with authority. He didn't quote just rabbis in the past. He didn't, didn't just make arguments about his spin on the Torah or on the law. He actually spoke as one having authority. He did have authority. He was the God man, Jesus. Not as the teachers of the law. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out. Impure spirit is a kind word for demon, okay? Well, first of all, let's note some things. Demons can go to church. Don't miss that. Demons can go to church. Secondly, there's no word differentiated in the Greek in the New Testament for the difference between being demon-possessed and being influenced by a demon. There's just one word. It's called demonized. And it's a matter of degree at what point spirits could begin to control a person so they could actually speak out loud through them. No one knows when that threshold is crossed. Now, do I believe that impure spirits. I don't really want to say demons when it comes to me, but demons could influence my behavior or my speaking. Yes, they did. Peter, if you'll recall, 
Jesus had to rebuke the spirit that was speaking to him. We looked at that a few weeks ago when he said to Jesus, you're not going to the cross and started to argue with him. Jesus rebuked the spirit speaking to him. It happened to be the Lord of evil, Satan himself, speaking to a disciple. We're all influenced at times in our lives by evil. This man had become controlled or dominated to a large degree by evil spirits. The evil spirits challenged Jesus in this case. What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? Apparently there was more than one. I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. That's not worship, by the way. That's a challenge of Jesus' authority. Well, the fight's over pretty quick. Verse 25, Jesus says sternly, be quiet and come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out with a shriek. Jesus won demons nothing, okay? And uh, it's going to go on like that throughout the book of Mark. The people were also amazed. They asked each other, what is this, a new teaching and with authority? Now they're using that word a little differently than Jesus just speaking with authority. There's been a demonstration of spiritual authority in their midst. He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. And news about him spreads quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Let's just make an observation here. When Jesus called the boys to follow him and they dropped their nets, left their family in charge of the family business, that doesn't mean they never saw their families again during the entire three years of Jesus' ministry. If you get the whole story, they go back and forth and have interactions with their family. They even go back to fishing at times. It's not bad to interact with your family or bad to have an occupation. That's, that's not the point. So they go to a home where apparently a large number of an extended family live because Simon Peter, who is married and who has a mother-in-law, his mother-in-law lives there as well as his adult brother Andrew and probably other members of the family. So they go to this family home, which is probably the base camp for Jesus' operations in the area of Galilee. And he goes in and the mother-in-law is sick they tell Jesus about it. Hey, Jesus, we've got a sick person in here. And by the way, she's the cook. <laughs> if you want lunch, you better go do something about it. That's a loose paraphrase. It doesn't say that, but I think that's what happened. So he goes into her, takes her hand, and just helps her up. Another passage says he rebukes the disease, the fever. Whatever he did, she gets healed. She gets up, begins to wait and serve all of them and uh, help them out with the meal. That evening, after sunset. Why after sunset? Because it's the Jewish Sabbath. And Jews don't do anything like this on the Sabbath day. Now, Jesus does. Another passage says that the Jewish religious leaders rebuked him for healing on the Sabbath and other things. But here, they're waiting till after Sunday, and they all start to show up at the door. So that evening, after Sunday, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon-possessed. <laughs> now, he's, uh, Mark stopped using the word uh, uh, a kinder word, like not demon, but just this impure spirit. And he says demons, or at least a translator does. And the demon possessed starts showing up at the door. And then there's hyperbole here. The whole town gathered at the door. I'm not sure that every Roman centurion in town was at the door. Uh, it's like us saying, wow, the whole town's come to see this. It doesn't mean that every single human in the town was there. I don't think could have been. There could have been 100% attendance at the door, but I doubt it. It's just hyperbole. And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also, sidebar, drove out a whole bunch of demons too. 
But he would not let the demon speak. Again, spiritual authority is being exercised because they knew who he was. That's the text. Let me comment on the city first, Capernaum. It's referred to prophetically in the Old Testament in Isaiah 9, verses 1 and 2. This is, by the way, it's about 700 years before Mark is writing the first century about what's happening with Jesus in Capernaum. As Zebulun, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali are Galilee of the Gentiles. Apparently there are a lot of Gentiles in this area. Where a great spiritual light would one day shine. Well, Mark is showing us that light shining and that light is Jesus Christ in Capernaum 700 years after Isaiah made the prophecy. It's located on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's the largest of all the fishing villages around the Sea of Galilee. Again, lots of Jews and Gentiles lived there. There It was a fairly important town. A large detachment of Roman soldiers was stationed there. We know that from other texts. It's, again, Jesus' base camp for his Galilean ministry. It's the home of a famous tax collector by the name of Matthew, who appears in the story later. Peter and Andrew and probably James and John. Jesus did many miracles in Capernaum. He taught lots of times in that synagogue. Yet, I want you to hear his sad commentary on the city of Capernaum later in his ministry. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 24. This is probably about a year or two later. Jesus says this. Again, remember the writer who's writing. It's a hometown boy, Matthew. He's writing about his own hometown, and he's recording the words of Jesus. He says this, Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed. Why? Because they did not repent. Repent of what? Repent of behavior that was out of line with the ethos of heaven. He was asking people to a different, he was calling them to a different lifestyle. A Sermon on the Mount type lifestyle. He was calling them to radical commitment and to follow him. And only a few did. So he says this, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that performed you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, that's two famous Old Testament cities that were famous for what? Evil. They would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. When it says these cities, it says they, he's talking about the majority of the people in the cities did not repent. But I tell you, it'd be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment. The day of judgment's all over the New Testament. You can't escape it. There is going to be a day when everybody's going to have to give an account. That for you. And then he says, and you, Capernaum, there it is. Will, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No. You're going down to Hades. Wow. For if the miracles that were performed to you had been performed in another famous Old Testament city, probably the most famous for evil, Sodom. Remember, God wiped it out for a number of reasons, a variety of reasons. With fire and destruction, he destroyed it utterly. It would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it would be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Just a scary thought. When you and I are presented with truth over and over and we fail to respond appropriately, we risk judgment as Capernaum did. What else can I say? Well, let's talk about the synagogues. The synagogues were started during the time of Ezra about 450 years before this. They were primary places that people came in towns to read copies of Old Testament scrolls 
and hear rabbis teach on the Sabbath day. There was no permanent teacher for a local synagogue, Jewish synagogue. Often traveling rabbis would speak there or somebody in the town would speak. Gentiles were welcome to attend. They could come in, they could roam around just like they were Jews. They could hang out in a synagogue on the Sabbath. Unlike most of the temple where Gentiles were not welcome. Also, no worship or sacrifices took place there. Jesus and Paul taught a lot in synagogues when they had the opportunity to. Now let's talk about Jesus' authority. I'm going back to that. Again, it's somewhat of a mystery as it relates to his time on earth. It's much clearer after his crucifixion and his resurrection from the dead. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2 that God, Jesus was God by nature. And in some way, he emptied himself when he came to earth of that position and power and came to earth as a man, yet still fully God. It's the mystery of what we call the incarnation, God pouring himself, so to speak, into a human body and becoming Jesus, son of man. He lived a sinless life. This is the gospel. And died a sacrificial death. That death was sin fulfillment of ancient spiritual laws that he and his father had ordained from before the dawn of time, requiring, whether you like it or not, the blood of a perfect sacrifice to atone for the sins of humanity, knowing at the time he ordained that or wrote that, that it was himself he was talking about. He wrote himself into the story as the sin sacrifice. His death dethroned someone else that had some degree of spiritual authority on earth as well. And Jesus acknowledged that in his interactions with him. A spirit being, we looked at this a few weeks ago, that Jesus referred to as the ruler of this world, Satan. It's not 100% clear from scripture how Satan got that authority, most likely through Adam and Eve's moral failure. Paul also tells us, in Colossians 1, 16 through 18, if we can pull that up, that Jesus was the creator of all things. All things were created by him, for him, and through him, Paul tells us. He is supreme over all things. And he literally holds the universe together by the power of his will. Jesus is a super glue holding the universe together. Paul goes on to say in Colossians 2.15, though. Know, that Jesus disarmed and defeated Satan and his demons and publicly humiliated them by his sacrificial death. Paul tells us again, back to Philippians 2, verses 9 through 11, a truth you need to remember, that every being in this universe capable of worship, that's at least the angels, all the demons, it's at least every son of Adam and daughter of Eve, will bow to Jesus someday and confess that he is Adonai, Lord of the universe. As a human being, though, while you and I are riding this spinning globe around for a few years or so, we're given the opportunity to choose whether to give Jesus authority over our lives. Every day we get that opportunity to decide, are we in charge today? Are the spiritual forces of evil that are influenced us, and I believe they are, interacting with us so that we wrestle with, as it says in Ephesians 6, are they dominating my mouth? Are they dominating my thought life? Are they dominating my behavior and who I hang out with? What did it take into my body? 
Or is Jesus Lord over me? I get to choose for a few years. But ultimately, every knee will bow. <laughs> every tongue confess that he is Lord, the glory of God the Father. Matthew 28, 18 records Jesus saying that all authority in heaven and earth has now been given to him. He says he stripped the keys of hell and death from the strong man, ransacked his house, and all of authority rests in him after his crucifixion and resurrection. And yet, he goes on in the next few verses to delegate some of that authority to you and I. So even though Jesus emptied himself in some way of spiritual power, going back to my first thought when he came to earth, and he was dependent on the Father. Remember, we, as we saw in today's text, that he routinely casts out demons while he was here on earth. He stops storms. He affects the weather if he wants to. He creates fish when he needs them. He heals the sick. Even then on a few rare occasions, he raises the dead while on earth. As an itinerant Jewish rabbi was his disguise. Now let's go to the topic of physical healing for a minute. Jesus physically healed many people during his three ministry years in Nazareth, Galilee, and Judea. Certainly hundreds, maybe thousands. To some extent, he designated also his healing power to his church after he returned to his father. We exercise that power in limited ways, granted, through gifts of healing, through faith, through prayer and fasting, and through the elders or the leaders of the local churches. Now, I believe there is some promise of divine healing even in the atonement, Isaiah 53, 5. Hear me out on this before you get irritated, some of you in bristle, because it doesn't fit your theological box either. But here's what I would say. I understand that by his stripes we are healed, refers primarily to spiritual healing, which is much more important than physical healing. But there's also some promise of physical healing as well, I believe. And sometimes spiritual and physical healing go together. There have been many accounts of divine healing throughout church history, including New Heights church history. Uh, as New Heights was being launched, some of you know this, God miraculously healed Becky Garrett when the leadership laid hands on her and prayed for her in 2001. And I'm going to, uh, in just a few minutes, share with you a very dramatic and unique healing story from 1998 that preceded uh, New Heights even being formed, but it involved our, one of our current elders. And you're going to hear the story in just a minute. I want to tantalize just a minute. First, I've got to cover a much less pleasant topic, the topic of demons. So before we get to this story, I'll go there in just a minute. But Jesus still heals naturally and supernaturally today. He uses the body that he designed to heal itself often. He uses doctors. He uses medicine. He uses science. He uses faith. He uses prayer. And he uses fasting. And he uses church leaders like elders. Does he always heal in response to prayer or to any of those? No. Do I believe in supernatural healing? Absolutely I do. Do I fully understand it? No. Another point. Jesus used a variety of healing techniques even during his ministry years. Some of them were a little unorthodox. Here's some examples. Verbal commands to demons that sometimes were causing some of the diseases. Verbal commands to the disease itself. Simply touching someone or taking someone's hand as in today's text. Simply affirming someone's faith. Sometimes he healed when there was no faith. 
Then it commands sometimes to go wash. Sometimes he would mix clay and spit and rub it on someone. Okay, set aside healing just for a minute. We'll get back to it. Demons. Mark makes it very clear, as I said a few weeks ago, that two kingdoms are in conflict in the first century. The kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. That was true not only in the first century, it's true in the 21st century. A question we need to discuss, though, just for granted, just for a minute, is exactly what are demons and where do they come from? They keep showing up over and over in all the gospel accounts, especially in Mark. You're going to see them every week nearly for a few weeks as we teach. It's clear the New Testament refers to them as evil spirit beings. The gospel writers document again that Christ was in continual conflict with them during his ministry years, and they also document he had supreme authority over them. Jesus recognizes that their ruler is Satan. If you want to prove for me on that, go to Luke 11, 14, 22, in an argument with the Pharisees. And he says in that conversation, that he came to ransack Satan's kingdom and destroy his works. Now, nothing in the Bible tells us exactly where demons come from. There are clues, however. The majority view of Bible scholars and Christian theologians has always been that demons are fallen angels, the ones that rebelled against God and sided with Satan, the so-called fallen angels. God cast them out of heaven and confined them to the atmosphere in and around earth. And most theologians believe those are the demons, not all theologians, and maybe not all demons. So let's go just for granted, and indulge me just for a minute. We're going to chase that rabbit just a little bit. I won't take long. Unless I'm going to tantalize some of you. Some of you are going to dig into this after we. I'm blaming Josh Graber for this rabbit trail, okay? He's the one that set me on this course this week. I went and read portions of the book of Enoch. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. If you want a deep dive on some other views about where demons came from, I'm going to give you three passages of Scripture. They refer to angels. You see, not all the angels are confined to the atmosphere around planet Earth. The Bible tells us that. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 through 6 is one passage. Jude 5 through 7 and verse 14. There's only one chapter in Jude. Don't get worried. And go to those passages and look what it says about certain angels that are confined in a special place because they especially heinous things. Well, what's more heinous than rebelling against God? Well, apparently they did some specific sins. They may have been sexual in nature. We don't know. There's big arguments about that. But you can just do a deep dive. One more passage that'll help you if you're into this. Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Key in on the phrase, sons of God, when you do, and use a lot of commentaries to get some different views. Now, if you really want a deep dive, there's a book out there. It's extra biblical. Strangely enough, it's quoted by Jude and Peter when they write, and it validates portions of the book. It's the book of Enoch. Some of you have heard of it. Liberal theologians debated what the book of Enoch was, did it ever exist, all this sort of thing. But it was found with the Dead Sea Scrolls. So it dates back at least two or 300 years before the time of Christ. Apparently it was very popular at the time of Christ. And it may have been written, early, early church believed this, by Enoch himself, who was the great grandfather of Noah. Now we're back thousands of years. 
Well, he had a theory about where demons came from. He believed it was from God. He believed the demons were the spirits of the children of male angels and human females. And those demons were confined in a special holding place awaiting the day of judgment. And the flood wiped out the ancient world. It's got to do with the flood. It's a long book, Book of Enoch. If you're really interested, go check that out. There are other even weirder views about where demons came from. Some people allege a pre-edemic race of beings, and these are the spirits of those beings. There's absolutely no um, evidence of that in Scripture, but I'm throwing this out for you if you're interested. Others believe that they're the spirits, particularly evil people that have died. Uh, these views hinge on the fact, and it's true, you can't get around it, that demons in the New Testament keep wanting to inhabit a body, either a body of a human or of an animal. Angels wouldn't be normally concerned about that. Okay, I've confused some of you thoroughly, some of you are bored, some of you are intrigued, but that's enough about where demons come from. Here's the point. Regardless of their origin, all demons are evil spirits that appear to exercise some degree of authority based on many scriptural references. That authority could come from a number of places. It could come from the sins of your ancestors. It could come from your own poor choices. That's a cute 21st century phrase for sin. It could come from unforgiveness. I've had some experience with that. Or from unknown causes. Clearly some demons have more authority than others. Not just in people's lives, but over territories. Daniel chapter 10, Ephesians 6 allude to that. Some uh, are referred to as familiar spirits. But here's the key point. Jesus has delegated to us great spiritual power and authority over them as well. Uh, at this point, I want to refer you to the spiritual warfare class that's coming up on Wednesday uh, in February, February 12th, 19th to 26th, 6.30, 8.30, church office. If you want to sign up, go on the website and sign up. There's already a lot of people. I'm sure it will fill up. It's taught by Kevin Rusak and Ann Rain. I highly recommend it. Now, if you're struggling also with what you believe may be direct demonic interference in your life, I've got another recommendation for you. Call the Joshua Center and ask to go through discernment prayer counseling. If you think it's too weird, I've done it on more than one occasion. I promise you will be blessed by it. It's free. The church pays for it. And we've shared with you already from this podium, Lee interviewed someone just a few weeks ago on Sunday morning, several stories of demonic interference and deliverance. I've got lots more. There are people here that have been involved a number of times when I've been around, uh, but I'm not going to share those with you this morning. One, one you might remember, I'll just allude to, is our first full-time staff member, Ken Shackelford, shared a powerful story, if you were here then, about being delivered from demonic influence in front of hundreds of people on a mountaintop at a retreat. Three different New Heights members have come to me in the last two weeks and told me personal stories of demonic encounters. I heard another one this morning, and I quite frankly hear about these a lot. I have a few stories of my own, but again, that's not the story I'm sharing with you this morning. It's a much happier story than that. I've said this many, many times, I want to reiterate it. I believe there are demons and angels around a lot. But greater is the one who is in me than any spiritual force that's opposing me. I don't understand all this, but I know that I have access 
to the most powerful and wonderful being in the universe. And even though I spiritually wrestle, I did last night, I do a lot, and you do too, whether you want to admit it or not, with unseen forces, I know that as the song goes and as the Bible tells me, the God of angel armies, that's what the Lord of hosts means, is always by my side. And that the name of Jesus and the blood of Jesus is more powerful than any demon. Your victory over evil in any form is based on your identity as a child of God. All right, let's switch now to a happier subject. I want to share with you again a healing story. It involves a friend of mine. I'll introduce you to her in just a few minutes, her and her sister. And I got this from Ryan and Ann Raina. She wrote a story of her life. And this is one of the stories that was in the story I got earlier in the week. So this is a kiss from God for all of you. This is Tina's story about her sister Lori's healing in 1998. In the summer of 1998, my family found out my sister Lori was gravely ill. She had a very rare disorder called fibrosing mediastinitis, caused by another weird word, histoplasmosis. Most of us have actually been exposed to histoplasmosis, we just didn't know it. But her body react, I did, overreacted to the mold spores in her lungs and created collagen tumors throughout her chest, outside her lungs, even in a few inside her lungs. These tumors had already closed off the blood flow to one of her lungs, causing that lung to shrivel and die. The local doctors did biopsies. When they sent Lori home from the hospital after the biopsy, she woke up coughing up blood. Her husband, AJ, called me in the early morning to say they were headed to the hospital once again. And he said, it doesn't look good. I quickly got out of bed. As I feet hit the floor, I heard a spirit, a voice inside me say to me, hit your knees start praying. I immediately fell to the floor and started crying out to God, dear God, save my sister. I then glanced at the clock and it was about 3.05 in the morning. I got up and rushed to the hospital. When I got to the emergency room where my sister was, she was sitting up in bed, sipping on a seven up, looking normal. She explained to me that she woke up coughing up lots of blood and it wouldn't stop. She said the person in the ambulance couldn't even get the blood flow to stop by stuffing rags in her mouth to soak up the blood. As the ambulance pulled into the hospital parking lot, though, she said the coughing and the blood flow stopped like someone had turned off a water hose. I asked what time that was. She said it was shortly after 3 a.m. I told her I'd been praying at that time, and I was amazed. I told her about hearing the voice of the Lord say, hit your knees and praying for you. Little did we know, though, that we were about to embark upon a journey that would change the course of our lives and the lives of hundreds of other people. We still didn't know what was causing all this. While at the hospital, Dr. Henley told us he thought it was this thing called fibrosing mediastinitis and that we should see a Dr. Lloyd at University Hospital at Vanderbilt. Dr. Henley just so happened, coincidence, coincidence, to have interned under Dr. Lloyd, who was a leading, uh, I guess, thoracic or pulmonary specialist, and he did actually do lung transplants at Vanderbilt University Hospital, and he was one of the leading physicians in the world in this area. There was only two places in the world that treated this rare disorder, and one of them was Vanderbilt University Medical Center. So we packed up and headed to Vanderbilt to see Dr. Lloyd. Now, he didn't have a particularly good bedside manner. 
And after looking at my sister's x-rays and doing an exam on her, he simply said there was nothing he could do. She should go home, get her affairs in order, and get ready to die. He said she would either suffocate or bleed to death. He said he'd seen 11 patients in 15 years, and none were still alive. He closed her file, walked out of the room, leaving us staring at one another in disbelief. Later that evening, as my sister Lori, her husband, AJ, and I were walking to dinner, I had a vision a very distinct vision of extremely large wings folding around the three of us. And I had an overwhelming feeling in my spirit that everything was going to be okay. And I was suddenly overcome with joy. And I started laughing. I couldn't help it. And Lori and AJ looked at me like I was crazy and asked, why in the world are you laughing? And I told them what I'd seen and heard. I don't think they believed me. But they listened and we all prayed together and close with, Lord, thy will be done. We traveled back to Northwest Arkansas the next morning, discussing how we were going to communicate, how they would tell their young children that mommy was going to die. Even though I clearly had had a vision, a visitation from the Lord of one of his angels' wings around us, I didn't mean it would, didn't believe it meant that she would have a peaceful death. I could not accept the death sentence that Dr. Lloyd had given my sister. My spiritual journey up to this point in my life had been marginally disappointing, to say the least. I was raised in church, knew some scripture, and had faith with God, Jesus, were real, but really I didn't have a relationship with them. When I was growing up, my mom was schizophrenic, and she had outbursts in church. Doctors had given us no hope for her getting better, so we turned to the church leaders, and they couldn't help us either. In fact, they asked us not to bring our mother back to church anymore because of her outbursts. We were devastated. And I fell away from going to church or having anything to do with it. I did, however, continue to pray for my mother's healing for years and for her deliverance from what I thought might be demonic forces. Nothing seemed to change, though, and I'd lost hope that God ever even heard my prayers. It seemed to me that God didn't care about me or my family up to this point, and it was devastating because he was our only hope, especially for mom. Let me just stop here and say, that's another part of the story. Her mother's schizophrenia continues, but she eventually is delivered and healed shortly before her death, a couple of years before her death, but that's a whole other story I don't have time to tell. Back to the story, when we arrived home from our trip to see Dr. Lloyd, I was obviously devastated and terribly scared, and I started praying day and night and crying out to God. I literally laid on my face and cried and prayed all night the first night we were home. During this time, I realized in my heart that I really didn't have a relationship with God. And I confessed it to him at one night, that first night we were home, I said, I don't love you. I really don't even know how to love you, but I desperately want to. Immediately I heard in my spirit, you have to know me to love me. And I sat upright. God had my attention now. I said, Lord, how do I get to know you? He answered very simply, you read my word. I got a little bold at this point. Since I was talking now, I believed to the God of the universe and he was talking back. And I said, well, God, I've read your word. And every time I read it, I either get sleepy or I don't understand any of it. What are you going to do about that? And actually, I heard him chuckle, I thought, at this point and say, well, try asking me before you open your Bible and I'll help you to understand what you're reading. So I immediately put him to the test. 
I went and ran and got a Bible. I said, okay, Lord, here I am and here's my Bible. What now? And I heard the words, James 5. I don't know what was in James 5, but I turned there and I started reading. Then I got to verses 13 through 16. And the words leapt off the page. It said that the person was sick. They should go find the elders of the church. The elders would anoint them with oil and pray over them. And the sick person would be healed. I started shaking and crying because now I really did believe that the most powerful being in the universe was speaking directly to me. And I started to believe that my sister was going to be healed. And I started to believe I'd just find some elders to do this. It would happen. When I told her the next day, very excitedly, that God had spoken to me, she wasn't nearly as excited as I was. And she said half-heartedly that she would agree to join me in church on Sunday, my family. Sunday came, and I was excited. I believed with all my heart that God was going to heal my sister. I had James 5 marked in my Bible, and I could hardly wait for the service to be over to find an elder to help us. The only problem was we'd just switch churches. We'd switch from Center Street Church of Christ to North Street Church of Christ, and I didn't know anyone there yet and didn't know any elders. As church came to a close, I grabbed my sister's hand, started looking around if I could figure out who was an elder at North Street. My eyes locked on a very tall gentleman, greeting and talking with lots of people, and I knew he had to be an elder. So I made a beeline for him across the room. I was dragging my sister behind me. I had my Bible marked with my finger, open to James 5, and as this elder greeted us, I made my introductions. He introduced himself as John Hayward. <laughs> Most of you know John Hayward, just in case you don't. He's one of the four founders of this church and one of our elders today. I started pouring out my sister's story. And by the way, he had no idea the rest of the story until this week. And telling John about the diagnosis of the doctor. I was rambling as talking as fast as I could about our sad story. My sister and I were in tears as John listened intently. Then he said, meet me back in the library. I said, I don't know where the library is. So he took us there. Then he went to get the pastor, the preacher. Upon returning, John asked us how we knew to come to him. And I said, I'd prayed for guidance and he just stood out as I looked around for an elder. And he said, well, not everyone believes like I do in healing and in prayer, but I myself believe I was healed from cancer partially because of prayer a few years earlier. And he said, I'm going to go get the pastor. He believes in this stuff too, and we're going to pray over you. Again, I'd grown up in church, and I'd never experienced or heard of anyone being prayed over and anointed with oil. John and the preacher, I don't remember his name, laid his hands on us and anointed my sister with oil and prayed for her healing. We left, and somehow I knew she would be healed. Fast forward a week or two. Lori received a call from Dr. Lloyd at Vanderbilt. He told Lori he'd been having dreams <laughs> of a procedure for her. And he couldn't get it out of his mind. He said she was too young to simply dismiss and die. And he said if he would come back to Vanderbilt, he would try this experimental risky procedure, this surgery on her, that he had very specific instructions or visuals about in his dreams. We had no option at that time, so we said yes. Upon arriving at the hospital, Dr. Lloyd described the procedure to us and ran some more tests. The surgery would require the help of a pediatric cardiologist surgeon, 
specializing in newborn and baby heart surgeries. He was going to thread a titanium stent from her leg. It gets a little medical at this point, bear with me. Through her heart into her large vein in her chest called the superior vena cava. They simply didn't know if it would work or not. This had never been done before in this scenario. The tumor was wrapped around, the problem tumor was wrapped around my sister Superior Vena Cave. It was the size of a baseball and it was as hard as a rock. This disease grows like a root system in the chest cavities of those who have it. It had already wrapped its rock hard roots around this vein and it was cutting off blood supply. It had cut it off to a right lung. It had shriveled and died already. Now the left lung was starting to diminish. The left lung also had multiple small tumors inside of it threatening to do the same. Dr. Lloyd was concerned the other lung would soon succumb to the tumors and he was also very concerned that the titanium stent that he was using would not balloon out as it was not designed to force open rock hard tumors. The surgery took many hours. When he came out of the operating room, he had a huge smile on his face and he said it was a success. He said the stent ballooned out perfectly even though the material was like concrete he said her head and neck, which had been purple and gray from back of a blood flow, immediately returned to a normal, perfect skin tone color. He then went on to tell us about another miracle, even bigger. At the beginning of the procedure, he threaded a camera through one of her veins into her left lung to take a look at the existing smaller tumors in the lungs and took some pictures. What he saw astounded him. There were no tumors. He held up two x-rays, one from a few weeks before, the other from a few moments before. The tumors, he said, in the left lung are gone. They look totally different. One showed tumors in the lung, the other did not. He said, I don't know what you people did, but the tumors are gone. Keep doing it. We told him we'd ask the elders of our church to lay hands on and pray for Lori, and we believed for a miracle. We, we said we believed in the power of God and believed God had removed the tumors and given him the dream and guided the surgeon's hands. We told him we didn't take anything away from him and his expertise, but believed God had guided and orchestrated this whole situation. He said, well, I know something's happened. So again, keep doing what you're doing. Dr. Lloyd said he would monitor her annually and measure the growth of the tumors. And after many years, he determined the tumors were no longer growing and said she would grow to be an old woman. These are the tumors outside of her lungs. She did return for a couple more surgeries to place even more stents. We returned home and both Lori and I decided to be baptized again. By the way, well, I'll get to that in a minute. And so that we were. We wanted to validate this intimate relationship with the God of the universe who had heard our cry and cared for us. He had become real to us now. He cared about us individually. Even though he hadn't healed our mom yet like we'd prayed, he'd heard our cries this time. In the years to come, Dr. Lloyd published this procedure. It has become a standard for people dealing with fibrosing mediastinitis who would otherwise have a death sentence. Most people with this disease are usually in their 30s or 40s and otherwise healthy. He has been able to save countless lives because of the obedience and courage of John Hayward and the preacher at North Street Church of Christ on that day. Our family was forever changed through this time. My sister Lori was able to go and raise her four children and now has six grandchildren. She also referees basketball and a softball. All these she would never have done if it had not been for God's intervention and our prayers and the obedience of one man. My life was forever changed in this season. Prior to that, I believed God didn't care about me or my family. 
that he cared for others, not me. I believe the, I, the lies of the enemy. I know after this season, God did hear me, he cared for me, he answered my prayers and intervened powerfully on my behalf. Let me add one more piece to the story. I'll confess, I've known Tina for years, but I'm still a jaded old lawyer, okay? So they gave me a little bit of information about someone else that they had shared with about three years ago in 2017, and she had gone and gotten this procedure. So I decided I was gonna do a little bit of investigative journalism, so I started trying to find the woman. This is Arkansas. Uh, she happened to be related to another one of our elders, Doug Harriman. And so I found Kara Harriman, who Doug had never met or never talked to, it was his second or third cousin, in Huntsville, Arkansas yesterday, on the phone. And she was diagnosed with the same rare disease three years ago. She too was told to go home there was nothing local doctors could do for her, and she was given a death sentence. She found Lori, or she found Tina first on social media. That's the last time I'll have a positive plug for social media, okay? But I did it. I did it. She connected with Tina first and told her a lawyer story, eventually with Lori. She went to Vanderbilt University Hospital. She confirmed this on the phone with me yesterday, consulted with Dr. Lloyd, went through the exact same surgery. It was successful. She's doing well. She worked at a bank in Huntsville. And she too had the elders of her church, happens to be, this is a Church of Christ story this morning, folks. Uh, the Huntsville Church of Christ had her elders pray over her and anoint her with oil. She believes that God answered her prayers. She believes that Tina and Lori found her and God used them to help save her life because she prayed. Her quote was this. Love it. God works in strange ways, Jim, she told me. But this is clearly a God thing. <laughs> yes, it is. Amen and hallelujah. And oh, by the way, I've invited the girls to come. They're living tangible evidence of my story. Tina and Laurie, stand up. They're here. Let's give them a hand. Okay, if I can find my notes. I know it doesn't always work that way. Some of you may be here today suffering from what may be a terminal illness. I know it doesn't always work out that way. I know that our bodies are deteriorating. I know lots of good people that love Jesus have prayed for years and not been healed. I know that many people have been prayed over and anointed with oil by elders who believed and have not been healed. I've prayed for many of them myself. But don't miss this. Don't miss this. A very ordinary woman cried out to the God of the universe and he came and communed with her and led her to an ordinary elder in a local church in Fayetteville, Arkansas, who was obedient to God's word and simply did what scripture said to do. He didn't even know till this week that his prayers had been answered and what had happened as a result of his obedience. Didn't have a clue. Meanwhile, in response to those same prayers, hundreds of miles away, God gave a renowned surgeon dreams about how to perform an experimental surgery that would ultimately save lots of other people's lives. Now, why did he heal Lori's lungs completely? He partially healed them. There's evidence of that even before the surgery. 
I don't know. He works in strange ways his wonders to perform. We will not have complete healing this side of heaven. I know that and you know that. Again, our bodies are mortal and they're deteriorating. But in spite of that, God still heals today on this fallen sin cursed planet and he still does it in miraculous and astounding ways where do we go with this I go back to Jesus's authority believe that Jesus has powerful authority over everything in the universe and when you pray and you commune with him you have no idea what forces you might be setting into play in any given scenario so keep praying Keep believing, keep crying out to God. And you may not know, like John wouldn't have known, this side of eternity, what effect your prayers and your obedience may have. Prayer team, if you'll come on up and scatter out around the room. If you want prayer for healing or anything else, I encourage you to go find a member of the prayer team. If you want to be baptized, as Lori and Tina were, and we had a couple of baptisms last hour, go find a member of the prayer team or find me. We'll take care of that this morning. We serve communion here. We offer it every week as the early church did. Go take communion during this last worship set. But right now, let's stand and engage Lori and Tina's God in worship, the Lord of the universe.